0: Welcome to the European Greens podcast, where we talk about the way forward to a greener and fairer Europe, together with green leaders and activists. The European Greens are a European political party that brings together national parties sharing the same green values like democracy, feminism, support of LGBTQ+, and climate action. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, and together, let's green our future. Hi, I'm Rihanna Johnston, climate campaigner for the European Green Party, and today we're back for another episode of the Green Talking Heads podcast. This time we're recapping the European Ideas Lab, an event co-organized between the greens AFA group in the European Parliament and the European Green Party. It took place live for the first time since before Corona, as well as online in Milan, Italy. The aim of the European Ideas Lab to create a space for change makers, activists, and green leaders, decision makers, to meet, exchange, and learn from each other so that we can design new solutions for the biggest challenges we're currently facing. At this EIL, we focused on two of the biggest, if not the biggest, challenges, climate and biodiversity. Being in Milan was particularly relevant for these topics because the event also coincided with the pre-cop and youth cop taking place, and therefore there was also a global climate strike which was definitely a personal highlight of the weekend. From the date of recording this podcast, it's less than a month until COP26, the Conference of the Parties or International Climate Change Conference, where all the signatories to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change will meet. And the stakes of these global climate negotiations, this is number 26, just keep getting higher. The most recent IPCC report, but also the extreme climate events we saw all over the world last summer, make it pretty clear that addressing the climate and biodiversity crises is still one of the number one challenges of our generation. This window of opportunity to achieve the necessary change that we need to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, or even well under 2 degrees, and thus limit the worst effects of climate change is closing very rapidly. But there's still a window of hope, and that's why I'm particularly excited about this episode. I had the opportunity to have some fantastic conversations with some of those change makers, many of whom are younger than I am and with 10 times the energy. So I'm excited to share their fight and their message, which not only deserves to be heard, but also needs to be listened to. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, then we can all already agree that we can't solve the climate crisis without global solidarity and without social justice at its core. But while we're fighting for more ambition and for more fairness, we also have to keep each other motivated in what feels like can be a never-ending fight. So I hope you find this episode and the interviewees as inspiring as I do, and then I hope that you go out and you become someone else's inspiration. So for our first set of guests on the podcast from um, EIL, I'm here with two Fridays for Future activists representing specifically MAPA, uh, but we'll come back to kind of what that means. Um, but I'm here with Drin Balouche and Esmeralda Caro. And um, yeah, maybe you guys can both just briefly introduce yourself and why you're here. I guess, did you come? Were you already in Europe or did you travel all the way from your respective countries?
1: Um, I'm Dhrin Baloch, as you explained. I'm originally from Balochistan, uh, uh, parted with three parts in Baloch uh, Pakistan and also Iran and Afghanistan. So I'm the part from Pakistan. I right now live in Germany, so I traveled from Germany to Switzerland, Switzerland to Italy. Nice. So I traveled 14 hours to just to be here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, I'm named Caro. I'm from Uruguay, a tiny but powerful country in South America, and yes, I traveled for then twelve hours by plane and made a lot of days of quarantine just to be here. Wow. Okay, I think that is probably the longest travel of anyone else I've met so far. Um,
0: cool. Well, maybe you can tell us a little bit about Mapa and what exactly that means. I think. It's a term that gets used quite a lot these days with sort of international climate negotiations and, uh, in in you know, more localized climate movements. Um, but I think a lot of people don't actually understand what that means.
1: Um, MAPA is a short form of most affected people and areas. So that explains that uh, w- what are the areas or the people that are mostly affected by the climate crisis mm-hmm. or just the climate justice in all. So we never talk about something that really includes climate only. We can talk about uh, political parts as well. So it's only that uh, when you say MAPA, it's most affected people and areas. But when you say prior to the future MAPA, then it's mostly covered the climate crisis in general.
2: Yes, and it's not a term that is well known, but uh, one month ago we could make the term to be on Wikipedia to, to make people conscious about these places. Mm-hmm and
1: that we are trying to speak and have our voices and also we, we try to make it uh, in the social platforms like telegram or instagram or whatsapp to be official so we are kind of um, official organization sort of like the mm-hmm. movement that is considered official by the social platforms so we're trying to make it official more like
0: okay so you also really want people to become familiar with the term and be using it Especially when we're talking about climate justice and the impacts from climate yes. change, yeah. Um, do you, maybe do you each have an example of what that means in your specific countries? Like,
1: um, for example, I come from Balochistan, so it's uh, uh, affected by the floods. For example, the climate crisis that has uh, really affected the people there. So when we talk about uh, Mapa in Balochistan, we say that people are. Uh, they don't have a house to live on after the floods or they are very disturbed with their family or usually in Balochistan the people uh, usually earn from the their daily lives from fishing mm-hmm. or also from the uh, pets they use so goats and uh, cows to sell the milk out of it yeah. so when the floods hit the places all of the animals are gone mostly even the kids are gone so they're really affected with that, and when we talk about the fishing, it's like recently the China is at the Guwahati court of Balochistan is ruled by China, mm-hmm. even though it's part of Pakistan. The laws and the uh, basic things are mm-hmm. controlled by China. So the China's Chinese government uh, basically passed a law or just said that uh, the basic the, or the public or the locals are not allowed to fish. Uh, in the sea that they have been doing their whole life, that that that's the basic way of earning. So uh, when uh, the climate crisis hit and also that justice part hit the people, that's even more extreme. Yeah. So all together when we talk about um, people that are affected, it's general when we say that. Yeah.
2: Yes, um, speaking from my country. Our tourism is based on our beaches and our economy is from from agriculture. Mm-hmm. So we are not an industrialized like country that okay, no matter what it's like done with the lands, we mm-hmm. can still be like in an upper position. We also depend a lot of, of our next countries. So we're trying to make our steps to be more independent. But yes, floods, um, land changes, and chemicals, mm-hmm. we also base a lot of oceans and there are a lot of bacteria that are growing from chemicals that mm-hmm. are from industries. So we're not still adapted, On um, there is the capital that is Montevideo where I live, but mm-hmm. I have been a lot of times through other cities and the rest of my country and you can see the huge difference between that they are heated really by climate change and they're not knowing about it because climate change is not an issue that it's like really talked in my country so how can we make those people like to adapt to an issue that they are not familiar with and they don't have the conditions or a money position to to make and adapt and to prepare themselves right which i guess is also kind of this
0: idea of climate change as a multiplier of other threats of, of social inequalities and kind of the You know, it comes on top of the
2: the inequality. In 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 MAPA
1: countries, that is very usual and very common that people themselves have no idea what they're suffering Mm -hmm. from. They feel like it's normal, which is not normal. For example, in most of the countries that never had the extreme weathers or never had the extreme conditions, Mm -hmm. they're having it now. But the people feel like it's normal and it's general. But when we talk about uh, social... Equalities or social just justice. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about education, we need to educate people that exactly what they are suffering from. So when I talk about Balochistan, the people are just living and trying to adjust themselves when they, the, the flood hit their village. They try to move to the next place. Mm-hmm. They don't really uh, have rights, or maybe they don't know to question. They feel like, oh, uh, how are we gonna? ask the river why did it flood they they don't really know that they can ask the government about it Mm -hmm. they don't know it yet so that is the basic problem with mapa countries that they most of them mostly people are trying to educate people by going street going on the streets Mm -hmm. and also creating campaigns so that is the basic way by educating leaders of course we are educating the leaders. And also the people themselves. So it's mostly like that when yeah. you talk about MAPA.
2: Yes, and um, and also to educate people on the environment and what is happening because that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. For them to know what are they suffering for and they as Green mentioned is not normal. So they yeah. should have and stand for what they are living and say, I'm right. here and I'm willing to express what I have lived. Yeah. So
0: I guess speaking of leaders and, and expressing like what you stand for, um, we are of course in a month from now we'll have the conference of the parties, the international uh, climate conference, um, and like that's where we'll you know talk about a lot of these kind of big global issues. So going beyond the usual national discourse, let's say, do you have kind of expectations or? Um, you know, demands or wishes for what you really want to see out of these negotiations.
2: Um, maybe they're part of intersectionality and to mm-hmm. address everybody because there are people from organizations from Friday for Future Uruguay, another environmental organization from my country, that they're trying to to attend COP and attend COP that is from the COP for Youth. Mm-hmm. But they are not getting the money. They are not getting finances right. from organizations, neither from the government. They are trying everything they can, but they are not like willing to to help. So I know there were like five or six people selected to go, mm-hmm. but they are trying a list that one can go to to represent not only Uruguay but also the region and to say we are here and right. we want these social issues to be addressed. So not just intersectionality but also accessibility
0: like bringing in more voices than kind of your regular politicians
1: yeah it also means that when we talk about uh, the COP26 it's Mm -hmm. the I think in MAPA countries for example where I belong Balochistan is like I try to uh, go there Mm-hmm. and uh, because i i am the very uh, closest one to go because i'm in europe yeah. and uh, one of my colleague yusuf Baloch, also tried to go there so because they couldn't get badges which mm-hmm. is, which means vaccination All most of the mapa countries don't have access to vaccination so because of the covid restrictions they can't travel to the country where it's happening so uh, i because of the uh, developed countries they bought all of the vaccinations yeah the mapa countries or the people cannot get the vaccination so they can't even go the, to COP. and uh, what my concern is that uh, when we go when we talk about cope what is the basic point if we don't let the mapa people we're talking about mapa people and mapa areas and don't include them I don't see the point basically of yeah. the COP26 yeah. and I, I basically don't think that it's going to change anything because uh, my, one of my friends asked me that uh, the world uh, leaders knows everything already. What is the point of talking? So when we talk about COP26, there is not that we want to go and talk or negotiate. There is no way of negotiating for the countries or global uh, climate crisis. Yeah. We just need to put pressure, and for pressure, we need number of people. Mm-hmm. As the big, the number of people, the big uh, pressure, and the big change. So for COP twenty six, that is the problem that has to be addressed. It's I, I don't see hope that it's going to be addressed because it's uh, firstly they say it, it's going to be digital, but now yeah. it's happening, and they don't have pages in the. MAPA countries.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think these are super great points. Um, I'm, I guess since we're at the European Ideas Lab and many of like, the European leaders, some will be green, some many not, um, but they will, of course, be going to COP. Um, so what's kind of something that you would ask of them or demand of them? Like if you could present your wish list To European leaders, what would you
1: say? Well, uh, we had all of the workshops and we had the opening session with our European ideas, uh, our Greens uh, politicians, Mm -hmm. or not Green politicians, as you mentioned. Um, uh, We can say that uh, they have heard us here, at -hmm. least. The people that joined and asked questions and tried to uh, present themselves and their opinions. When we know, already I've mentioned that, uh, unfortunately, we, uh, MAPA countries can't really contribute into COP26. So I expect or I have a wish list from these leaders that you have heard us. Now you have to represent us to the COP26. Mm-hmm. And when you don't, I don't see the point of this all three days of working with you guys, because then there is no point when you heard us and you're not going to talk about us. Right. Yeah. That That is the whole point, I think. <laughs>
2: Yeah, um, not only like take pictures and say, oh, we're taking action yeah. because they're only for greenwashing. So it really make the spaces not only for environmentalists, um, also people that would like to make change, but also for young. Mm-hmm. That we're kind of is like also very young and we're like under 20 years and mm-hmm. we're already here. So we want to give this space for future generations to also express their opinions and they have like strong beliefs. And they also want to communicate, not because they are like I know teenagers; mm-hmm. they don't have the power or they don't have I know the knowledge or experience to, to enjoy, Because maybe they have a lot of more experience that mm-hmm. adults people from And they know more about climate change and how to address it. and who's more to represent youth than yeah. youth. Totally, totally, yeah, but. As writers for Future activists,
0: uh, as MAPA activists, um, you have to talk about these topics all the time. And I'm sure you also give other interviews. But what's a question or a topic that you don't get asked about, that you wish people would ask you about?
1: Um, when we come to uh, places like uh, talking about or striking, mm-hmm. the people come us and uh, talk about, for example, what is MAPA? We're okay to answer what is Maba, but uh, when we see that people are coming... Right right now, in this time, in 2021, we don't have much time. So we right. could educate people or the educated people to be more educated. For right. example, in Europe, mostly when I go to the strikes in my city, uh, people comes up and ask question: What is climate crisis? What is going on? I feel like it's more like when they want to do something. Uh, they should educate themselves now mm-hmm. without asking i i don't know what question they should ask, but what question they shouldn't ask is what is MAPA <laughs> or what is climate crisis mm-hmm. that is the basic education sh- they should have for mm-hmm. themselves to at least uh, survive in this world that that's what I, I think is important
2: yes um it's not a question but something that I get a lot is i made question from my beliefs i don't i get to uh, why are you vegan? Because that doesn't change the environment or what are you, I don't know, recycling paper because your action is not going to change the world. Instead of like questioning the other person, like to listen to what they have to say because maybe they have a lot of information and they're like, I don't know, trying to represent you also because mm-hmm. this is affecting everybody and yeah. I don't I'm not here representing myself, I'm here also representing a lot of work that has been made in my country and my colleagues. So these spaces are for, I would like your, um, the Europeans to say, oh okay, yeah. a girl went and she represented. I also want to, to have those ambitious view that yeah. we should stand more from ourselves and not have the fear, oh because we are a tiny country we shouldn't mean nothing.
1: Exactly, with my uh, I'm the first girl to represent or Fridays of Future, yep, it's amazing. Uh, so, uh, I think I would be I, I won't call myself inspiration because that's a big word, but I, I would make a path for the girls that are yeah, wanting absolutely. to come and uh, they might can't come in Europe, but they can actually talk with their parents, their families there that oh, yeah, she's doing it, it might be important and uh, to the countries that mapa countries that uh, doesn't know that how important climate crisis is when we say that your Europe people european people that has everything to access mostly yeah. so they are protesting of something which means that is important when we idolize uh, european countries that has oh it's like heaven for countries that has nothing to do with uh, luxurious life mm-hmm. so when european people are talking about it that means there is something that they need so mm-hmm. it means that has to be addressed. So for MAPA countries, they have to know that it's important and they shouldn't really think about, oh, it's going to happen in 30 years, we don't care. But, but I mean, if there is no planet, there there is no life, Yeah, basic thing.
2: Yeah. And also to let children to adolescents, adults, to let them ask questions because maybe they're asking a lot of what's happening, what's going to happen to happen to myself, to my family, and um, a lot of people like, oh no, that's not a the theme that we are addressing or we don't care. Mm-hmm. So that's like a lot of people that are trying to make those changes and to to think ab- outside the box and outside what was culturally correct. Mm-hmm. So. Make people and let them have those spaces for to talk, to, to teach them and to, mm-hmm. and to address everybody and have everybody's voice. Yeah, basically have a safe
1: space to talk. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. Yeah, I, I think maybe as like a final, also positive closing point, you had a really cool slogan uh, that you told me about earlier and maybe you can bring that back in as sort of a, a wrap-up.
1: We can say that together. So we want to say that don't fight for us
0: with us super thanks so much guys this thank was you. really nice thank
2: you for um, having us here
0: we're here now with our second set of guests uh, from the EIL here in Milan and we have Narmine Abakari, and she's the digital rights campaigner for the Greens FL Group in the European Parliament and also Walter McGarry who is a local and independent repairer uh, from Italy So maybe we can first start and you both can just tell a little bit more about yourselves than just your title. Uh, Maybe, Narmine,
3: would you start? Yeah, sure, thank you. So I worked as a a digital rights campaigner for the Greens, so for Green members of the Parliament here in Brussels. And this implies that I actually do campaign on reparability issues and more specifically on the on the right to repair so hoping that citizens will be aware that they should have a right to repair Mm -hmm. guaranteed by the european union and that companies need to stop producing products that are Mm unrepairable or difficult to dismantle or even difficulties to get access to Mm -hmm. spare parts
0: Yeah, I I want to dive into that a little bit more. But first, maybe Walter, tell us about yourself.
4: Many thanks for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, Well, I've been starting work as an an independent repairer. Then in years, we grew up and we set up a platform that is gathering people needing to have a smartphone fixed at local place. Mm-hmm. So now, right now, we put together almost 200 independent shops wow, okay. that are making smartphone fixing for local people. Mm-hmm. And thanks even to this website and platform, we gather data that are going to be used for making studies about how it is going to be the lasting of average smartphone, how mm-hmm. to fix them, and what is going to be worth or not. So we here even to work on providing data about this
0: cool so okay let's let's take a step back because the the eil is supposed to be around climate and biodiversity uh, in this this particular edition um so what does repairing products and you know the lifespan of of iphones and our mobile phones
3: what does that have to do with
0: climate i mean
3: so in the world where everyone has five to probably ten devices at home, we first create more extraction of rare resources, mm-hmm. so which is really damaging to the environment. We also produce a huge amount of devices um, using different type of uh, of um, of elements, so plastic, glass, right. gold. Um, and then we obviously, at some point, um, throw them away mainly because the industry are making really hard to repair your own phone right, or yes. even um, just because your software is not adapted anymore to your to your smartphone or I don't know that could be to any devices so this life cycle of a smartphone um, wash machine is damaging to the environment in so many ways from the extraction mm-hmm. to the production to the recyclability of the devices and um, it's creating a throwaway economy and um, this is why this is linked to the environment and as climate activists we have to be on board of the waste that we are creating
0: yeah Yeah, I mean I think this is like a really important element of you know we can talk about climate and emissions and and, you know these big kind of like very Hard to picture or like see in our daily life, um, but then you know something like our smartphone that we use, you know, every day, um, probably too much each yeah. day, right? <laughs> is is uh you know it has an impact, and we don't really factor that into I think some of these big conversations about our consumption and like how we also use our materials and our resources kind of really like have such an impact on you know these big vague numbers. Um, Walter, how about you? How would you see the link between climate and of course,
4: repair? Uh, repair are here to slow down the chain, slow down the system on one side and on the other side, give even a chance to make more efficient recycling. Mm-hmm. But it's even true that the repairer often gives hints to the engineer that is going to make the new models. So we're wishing to do it for several reasons. But mm-hmm. above all, even to slow down and give even time to make it this consumption more yeah. affordable. Yeah, Even because we can reuse sem- several devices in different countries with much more profit for everybody and more sustainability for everybody.
2: Mm-hmm. So
4: when something is old in a country, it can be still good in another one. So we can use it for much longer.
0: Well, and, and you touch on a really important aspect too, which is design, right? Like how the product's are made, uh, and because that has such a huge impact on you know the, the, building, the end yeah. of their, their life. Um, and maybe that's where we can link it back to the petition
3: or the that you're working on around the right to repair. So the Greens at the Parliament launched um, a, re- a like a repair score petition. Um, basically, the aim is to make sure that the Commission introduced a proposal on um, a repair score that indicates the recyclability, but also repairability of devices. And this should be mandatory. We did it for light bulbs in the past. Mm-hmm. So applying the same to um, smartphones or any electronic devices is key. Because then it will tell you more about the accessibility of the spare parts, the the lifespan of your of your devices, also um, the price of them. That really matters in the yeah, in the okay. the way you design your 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 HD devices, and this enable the consumer to be in the power to also penalize the company when I buying a, f- mm. a phone, a refrigerator, whatever that is unrepairable and there's a sort of like naming and shaming the companies because they would have right. a mandatory obligation yeah. to tell us how repairable our devices are so this is the yeah. first step so we are trying to influence the commission through the petition and that's why we hope that the commission will harmonize this entire mm-hmm. thinking and um, and that uh, they would also penalize the companies yeah
0: I mean I think that's also something that we really kind of take for granted that you know probably 50 years ago our grandparents you know most of the things in their life could be taken and just repaired and you know you took your blender and instead of throwing the whole thing away you would repair it just put new blades in or um, you know I think bikes are a great example of something that it's still very repairable and, and a bike lasts forever Kind of thing, either. you know, um, and maybe that's also something that you experience as, like, you know, Walter as being yeah, the the repair fixer You
4: really got the point. I mean, before it was much more easy to fix than to be, buy it again to mm-hmm. produce it again. We have to make it more affordable and to make it more affordable to make more affordable to repair instead to buy, mm-hmm. because often nowadays it's more convenient to buy than to fix. To right. rebind. exactly, it doesn't make sense. No, it's very it's strange. Yeah. yeah, but it's wasteful as well. So, thanks to the law, we could have access to spare parts. Sometimes, is one of the reason why it's not re- repair, repairable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and on the other side, even the price of spare parts sometimes is an issue because of different causes. So, if law could help us in this direction, mm-hmm. anything could work a bit better on this direction.
0: Nice. Yeah. Well, and I guess that's also a good um, segue into one of the the stand that you guys had at the EAL, which I really thought was a super cool concept. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you can tell us a bit about that.
4: Well, it has been very nice to meet, meet uh, different people because I often see different kind of customers, but sometimes I even lost the contact with needs and ideas about activists or people that really look at things in different shape, in different way. And uh, I still was really surprised that today and yesterday, some people were coming to me saying, oh, come on, is it really possible to fix it? Or isn't more um, convenient or isn't uh, required as well by the producer? to simply throw it away and buy a new one. Yeah. So there's still people thinking that maybe it's part of the process just when it's over, it's over. Mm-hmm. Not taking even consideration to let's make it longer.
0: Yeah. And which is I mean which is quite surprising given that, you know, most of the attendees here are yeah. people who, you know, already have a certain level of yeah. of education or awareness on on climate issues. Um, which makes that even more Shocking,
4: yes. depressing. <laughs> I was really shocked because, I, to be honest, this reaction was often coming by younger people, not from mm. elder people. So this is, even a way, to tell us how so- or in some generation, are growing. So yeah. we should do something, and it has to be even political way. We cannot yeah. always have good ideas and stop it there or just have... Somebody yeah. going against a windmill, and maybe. yeah, So definitely. that's even.
0: And I, I guess actually we should clarify for the listeners that the yeah. stand was kind of a repair stand. So yeah. that people could come and, and do it bring by your yourself. Accidents. Yeah, yeah. And, and ask you questions. Yeah, uh,
4: but it, was, it is very, really fun because I give you the method and then you do by yourself. The, mm-hmm. the, the, <laughs> the target is to be independent.
5: Yeah, oh, to do it
4: by itself. Yeah, that's very funny Even to understand when you're gonna enter next time on a shop, what is the mentality behind the producer, but even by the fixer. So you're gonna have to the full globe in front of you and better be able to make your own choice.
3: Yeah, how do you I mean, did you have some experiences or how did you kind of? Yeah, like I think the the entire idea behind the the stand then is that. Um, usually we have access to youtube videos Mm -hmm. and i had done my own research is that you do have videos Mm -hmm. but you always care to do it on your own phone because (laughs) you're in a desperate situation you've already dropped it in the toilet so (laughs) then (laughs) watching a tutorial telling you how to do it when your phone is almost about to die Mm -hmm. is not the best way of dealing with this but with water, having a broken phone, and then you can exercise on a broken phone, make you more confident. So the idea is, like, trust yourself in the process, learn by yourself, and then you'll be ready to the next step. And um, this is also a new way of uh, bringing the local repairers to your home, to mm-hmm. your hometown, to the closest to you, so you understand better. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think also we... Uh, we talked about this a little bit before, but I think this is also like one aspect of like a green economy or green jobs where we often think of those jobs as being, you know, building solar panels, right? Yeah. But but they can also be things Small like... Small teams, yeah. Small yeah you teams know, having,
4: even in the corner.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and having that, like, that access and, and the skilled labor and also valuing, um, you know, different kinds of jobs around like... For example, repairing our electronic devices instead of throwing them away.
3: And especially in a time where we were all using smartphones, computers, so these devices became essential to our Mm -hmm. daily life. So now I think a lot of people also value the computer much more than they did before because they had no other ways of access to other devices and in France the refurbishments I mean not only in France to be honest like everywhere across Europe like Mm -hmm. we had kids who needed computers and what did we do is that we used refurbished one Mm -hmm. or the one like unused by um, companies and they were left like on shelves so all of a sudden the Mm refurbishments and the the second hand industry like the blue during the pandemic and that's how you realize you could create an economy around it instead of buying new devices. So that's where job creation is really, really valuable. Yeah,
4: definitely. But it is even to create more mm, more aware consumers
3: mm-hmm. because this
4: way you really know what you have to do. You have all the elements to make your own choice with your own means. Yeah, yeah, so then that's even create a kind of freedom in between people, yeah, because they know what's going to be the consequence, but they can even select what to buy with the, with the mm-hmm. most care. That's it,
0: yeah. And I mean, the, the consumer information is also one really important piece, but then yeah. the others are also much
4: that is right?
0: The policy makers, which is also you know, EIL bringing together those perspectives and, and then, um, also you know, working towards this right to repair at the EU level, but then also forces companies to kind of take on that role in making that possible. Thank you all for taking the time. This was really nice. Yeah, okay. <laughs> So our final interviewee for, the, for this EIL podcast uh, is Lena Hartog. She's a campaigner and activist and co-founder of the Slow Fashion Movement. And um, I'll let her tell a little bit about that herself. Um, Yeah, Lena, the floor is yours. Tell us about Slow Fashion Movement and your role. Yeah,
5: no, very happy to uh, be on this podcast. So I've been involved in climate activism for the past years. And it was around one and a half year ago that I started getting involved with what was then called Slow Fashion Season. Mm -hmm. And Slow Fashion Season is this crowd acting campaign which works almost the same as crowdfunding, but then you kind of vote with your actions. Yeah, yeah. So it says if enough people commit to going vegan for a month, we all do it. And we had then a campaign when it's, where it said if 2,500 people commit to not buying any new clothes for, for the summer, we all do it. Mm-hmm. And it just started as a small campaign in the Netherlands, but in the past three years, it's grown to this global campaign with like in total 30,000 people participating for three summers. And um, yeah, I just, it was one of the campaigns of the NGO that I was running last year. And at some point I realized this campaign has outgrown the NGO and there was so much energy and there were so many volunteers asking Mm -hmm. if they could get involved. So that's why a year ago, together with a group of very dedicated volunteers, I set up Slow Fashion Movement. So from a campaign, Slow Fashion Season, we turned into a movement and I've been helping to... Get new volunteers on board. Start local groups around the world.
0: Oh, get ambassadors. Um, that's a bit the story. Yeah, um, I really love this idea of crowd, uh, crowd acting. Uh, so maybe we can come back to that. But before we dive into that, um, since this EIL, the whole theme is on climate and biodiversity. Uh, what does you know fashion and uh, yeah this campaign have to do with climate? Like, where are the links there?
5: Yeah. So. I think as an environmental activist, it was also quite late that fashion came on my radar. Mm-hmm. I think it's maybe because a lot of environmental activists don't care that much about fashion. <laughs> <Yeah>. Like, they're <laughs> usually a bit anti-consumerist. I mean, yeah,
0: I think everyone here at the Yale is wearing tennis shoes. Though. That's <laughs>
5: it. Like, I've often heard from them, like, oh, I actually only have 10 t-shirts. Like, who are you addressing? Mm-hmm. But uh, fashion is actually an incredibly polluting industry. Yeah. And the pollution mainly comes from the water it uses mm-hmm. so it uses a lot of water in different parts of the process of creating fashion and then of the inability for this industry to actually recycle so yeah. only one percent of all the clothing is recycled and that's super it's super yeah. super tiny so the water is one thing and then the second thing is the chemicals that are used to mm-hmm. bleach and to color all the clothing yeah and that's another impact and i think for myself i see not only the link with climate change in the actual impact, but also in what fashion and overconsumption of fashion stands for. It stands for this bigger culture where we just buy more than we need and Mm -hmm. where companies are telling us we should buy more than we need. And I think fashion is the best example, actually, of overconsumption. And that's why it's incredibly important in the discussion on climate change and transforming to a new new economy.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that's also such a good topic that... um, It totally resonates with me what you're saying about fashion being sort of this topic that isn't talked about very often in environmental or, you know, within climate. We talk about energy and we talk about transportation and and these are also super important, but we don't really talk about fashion so much, even though it has such a giant impact. I mean, I think there was um, the numbers that like the emissions from fashion are more than aviation and maritime shipping globally and i mean that's insane we don't we don't think about that hardly at all um and yeah i think the consumption aspect is so key um but maybe like that's a good connection then to this crowd acting and and having people kind of engage with that how does that um, play out yeah so
5: when it comes to climate change and Transforming to a new economy, mm. I think especially in the European Greens and any political scene, there's usually a focus on policy making. Yeah. But what I believe is that we need to change, of course, everything. So we need to change consumers, yeah. companies, policies. But what a lot of consumers, what holds them back from acting, is this idea of being a drop in the ocean. Mm-hmm. If I act alone, what difference will it make? If I make my mm. wardrobe perfect, eat healthy, eat vegan, la la la. Yeah. And so crowd acting solves this feeling of being alone by showing that you're together with others Mm -hmm. and i did my first crowd action on flying so i convinced one airplane full of people that's 189 people for an average airplane not to fly for a summer and i really found how powerful it is to invite people to do something with you just like a diet challenge or something yes and for us we've seen that crowd acting it's a very good first step to then become a bigger campaigner. So mm-hmm. people start in their own wardrobe for three months. And usually during those three months, they interact with our movement by reading our mm-hmm. content. And at some point become a campaigner, become a volunteer and start organizing their own things. Yeah. So I really think crowd acting is a super important part of this transition. Yeah. And I think next to voting with our voice, voting with our vote, of course, in mm-hmm. elections... All of us are also voting with our money and with our choices we make in our everyday life.
0: Yeah, no, I really love that idea of um, both, you know, the small steps that can help you to kind of get into taking bigger actions, but then also that it's a way to kind of build a community around an issue as well and give people that social connection that I think yeah. is can be really hard. I mean, climate is so big, so overwhelming. So yeah, what are your like what are kind of the key things where you see that policy needs to change and what like here at the EIL we have the policymakers you know they're obviously the green ones and there's more out there but what would you tell policymakers uh, you know what do you want from them like what's your wish list
5: yeah so I think we need to start talking not just about sustainable fashion but about slow fashion too and with that I mean about slowing down consumption and production of the fashion industry so What I would love, I've been thinking about it today, is if we get a sustainable trademark, which the EU is working on right now, mm-hmm. also include something about whether or not a brand is willing to start producing less. Oh, I'd love Just that. if yeah. they are one way or another actually committed to, in yeah, that definitely. sense, degrowth yeah. and meeting the Paris Agreement. So that's, I mean, but that's a big hope, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, nowhere in the sustainability debate, there's enough yet on actually slowing down. Yeah. And then more concretely, when it comes to fashion, as consumers, we have the right to know where our clothes are made. Mm-hmm. But the moment we start talking to brands, they say it's impossible to know from all of their producers yeah. because it's not actually, you don't have to do mm-hmm. it. It's not enforced. Yeah. So transparency is the big word in anyone working on fashion, but it's really the first step we need transparency. And that means we need rules that companies need producers need to provide it tire one and tire two producers. Yeah. Otherwise brands can never show how sustainable their products are. Yeah. And I think the two other things are more, let's say, on a almost moral level or just Mm -hmm. a collaboration level. Second thing is to see fashion lovers as an important ally in this transition. Mm -hmm. There's lots of people around the world, a lot of young people, a lot of young women, actually, who love fashion, who don't see themselves as environmental activists, who probably don't really care that much about politics. But they do know the fashion industry is polluting and they, they want that to change. Right. Yeah. And the moment politicians start working with consumers, we make a much scarier and dangerous combination to <laughs> yeah, companies, possibly. right? Yeah, yeah. Like Companies listen to consumers, so see us as an ally. Mm-hmm. And I think the third thing that's also on a more higher and abstract level is to move beyond this binary discussion of personal versus political change. Yeah. So I'm so grateful that people are working on policies but we also need lots of consumers, the masses, to change their ways. We can mm-hmm. only do it if we're facilitated, right? We need, right. Yeah, we, yeah, need, yeah. we need policies, we need transparency. But move beyond that, mm-hmm. go for a system change, and yeah, use all of the others you can get.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's yeah, so many great points in there. So I, I've been asking the others as well, but... Um, as you probably give talks on this topic a lot and you you uh give interviews or podcasts this sort of thing what's one question that you really wish that you would get asked more often or or even just ask um around slow fashion and consumption and campaigning on this topic or yeah
5: yeah i think the question and it, it it does get asked but i think not as precise is should everyone now go to slow fashion. Yeah. So should yeah. everyone um, only buy sustainable clothes and secondhand? Right. And I think that's a... I wish people asked it more often because then they would know my answer. No, of course not. And then we can also integrate intersectionality and inter- inequality in this discussion. Mm-hmm. So what I've learned from working with people from all over the world is that I'm hugely privileged in having so many sustainable and secondhand options around me. Yeah. So I have an amazing volunteer at the FBI. She called me because she said... There's no secondhand options in my town. Like, there's nothing. And that's, I think, the... Especially if you look on Instagram, that's where we're very active. Mm. It's become a lifestyle to have sustainable fashion. And it's often by mainly white-bodied people from a usually privileged background. So I wish anyone working on slow fashion in any way always, like, check your privilege. See if you can do it. If you can do it, you have a responsibility to do it. But for us, the slow fashion movement is not a question to every person in the world to do that Mm -hmm. it's a question to those who have the space and for policymakers to make the space for more of us to transition to this new way of living
0: yeah absolutely i yeah i think the social aspect is so key i mean we see that with the majority of the climate impact coming from you know the wealthiest countries the wealthiest people the highest income um and that we also kind of yeah take that on board in terms of our individual responsibility as well as the you know, the country-level responsibility of big polluters um, to reduce their emissions, or in this case, consume less and better. Um, Yeah, (laughs) and that's, I mean, and that's for me also the,
5: in this debate about personal and political change, um, I think it is, I mean, looseners, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it is 1% of the population in the world that has 50% of the total emissions. Yeah, or something and similar, yeah. I mean, I'm part of that 1%, right? I'm not right. gonna get it. I, I'm living in one of the richest countries in the world, in the Netherlands. Yeah. So within that 1%, it's very weird if we have a conversation about us consumers or us individuals as, mm. as if we talk about the whole world. We're talking about a very small group. And yep. of course we have a responsibility to limit our lifestyle. I think one of the concepts I recently read about that I found very interesting was someone that said, I'm going to limit my emissions so that I'm already ready for the world we're hopefully creating. Mm-hmm. So I'm not doing it yeah. because it's morally superior. I'm just getting myself ready. I'm getting used to something we will some they all have to do yeah, and yes. someday hopefully all be facilitated to do mm-hmm. by better infrastructures and sustainable options and all of that. Yeah, And I really like that. I also think I want to be ready for the future. I want to show that I'm ready with everything I do. Yeah. I want to embody my values and that in itself is
0: very rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. I think someone in the last session was saying that you know we, we sort of need to be ready for change to come either way, right? Because if we continue with business as usual in all aspects the change that we will see through climate impacts will be you know like we will see change and in that sense it will be negative change or we can as you say prepare ourselves for that positive change and in preparing ourselves also kind of pave the way towards that more positive alternative future that we want to see um and i think that's like a really good way of looking at it yeah nice Super. Well, I don't know, do you have any last words? Like I feel like we should wrap up since I I just pull you away from the Aperol. and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the
5: drink <laughs> No, um, it's been it's been a great pleasure to be here and to talk to other panelists and I think one thing I learned today again mm-hmm. is how valuable yeah. it is to be in a conversation with people who actually occupy different roles in a debate. Mm-hmm. So yeah. today we were with someone who was a researcher, someone who works for the European Commission, yeah. another influencer, and then yeah. you actually get different perspectives. And you also immediately, at least I did, I experienced how we kind of had a similar story, but in the nuances that mm-hmm. are different, yes. that's also where the absolutely, battles yeah. are still fought. So I think, I think that's a, a lesson I took today. And anyone listening, if they ever doubt, um, do search for those conversations. Yeah, Stay absolutely. radical, but do talk to people to get more radical.
0: And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to our special podcast episode, recapping the European Ideas Lab. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to our guests. And like I said before, I hope you found it at least a little bit inspiring too. As you might guess, our climate campaign will next take us to COP26. In a few weeks, we'll be in Glasgow, fighting to kick polluters out and get people in, talking about what exactly climate action can and should mean for making the world a better place for everyone, and, of course, to put pressure on world leaders to ramp up action. We might not all be able to be there physically, but we can definitely all hold world leaders accountable, and it's going to take all of us. You can check out our climate campaign and learn more at europeangreens.eu. In the meantime, we'll be back soon with our next episode on health policies with Yanis Natsis, Advocacy Lead for Better and Affordable Medicines at the European Public Health Alliance. But to make sure you don't miss any episodes, You can also subscribe to our Green Talking Heads podcast. And if you liked this episode, you can also leave us a quick review or share the podcast on whatever platform you found us. Thanks again for listening. And remember, keep up that pressure for climate action.